Welcome back to Half Bite, everybody. This is episode six or seven. I, I lost track, to be honest. It's been a while. Um, but yeah, let's get right into it. Pratyush, give us your news for the week. All right. So, uh, uh, where to begin? This has been this has been an interesting time uh, for cybersecurity because I think between this episode and the last one, I haven't really talked about like the Solar Winds breach. That's been sort of talked about a lot. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one. Let's just say that the SolarWinds breach was huge and probably every company you can think of has been breached by that. But <clears throat> anyways, there's, uh, there's another company called Excellion and they provide, a, they provide, among other things, a firewall and file transfer applications and stuff. Uh, and they're, they're aimed at companies. So Excellion had to patch their software multiple times in December and January. Uh, and this was because vulnerabilities zero days were found. So the four vulns that were found were in the file transfer appliance, which is basically used to transfer like large amounts of sensitive data through your corporate network. Now, the reason that specifically getting breached is bad is because most of the time if a hacker breaches you, they have to try and find uh, where like the sensitive information is. In this case, they don't need to because they know if you're using that, you're using it for sensitive uh, information. So the, the four zero days that were found were mass exploited and they were used to target many, many different firms. Uh, like one notable example that I found when I was researching this was the law firm Jones Day. And now like, if you're into law, you might know who Jones Day is. If you don't, uh, they basically are like, they handle big companies like JP Morgan and Chase, Google, Procter and Gamble, McDonald's. They basically, they're law firms for the big companies. So a lot of these sort of since a lot of the sensitive information to do with that legal aspect was breached. And then something a little bit more close to home and just, just another reason to not, to not use Facebook. Uh, 533, I somehow missed a million while making notes on this. Uh, basically a bunch of uh, Facebook users' phone numbers got posted onto a hacker forum for free. So it contains details that can be found on your profile, but also private phone numbers. So things like your mobile number, your Facebook ID, your name, your gender, your location, relationship status, occupation, date of birth, email address, all of this got leaked. Uh, it's, it's suspected that this is like from, an, from a, the exploitation of an old vulnerability ba uh, back in 2019 in the Facebook ad friends uh, section, which allowed basically access to like uh, private phone numbers. And so here's, here's an interesting one. Included in the data is the phone numbers of Dustin Moskowitz, Chris Hughes, and Mark Zuckerberg, so the three founders of Facebook. Um, and like, I, I guess like one of, the, one of the sort of naive ways to look at this is, you know, oh yeah, this data is publicly available on my Facebook profile, right? Because your name, your gender, relationship status, occupation, date of birth, all that kind of stuff you yourself put on your Facebook profile. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of the naive approach is just to say, oh yeah, it's, it's not that big of a deal. But like when, when you have this kind of data publicly available, it can be used in like more advanced phishing attacks and you can basically use it to fool more people because now someone has your email address and your phone number and they know where you live and what job you do. It becomes very easy to sort of target you to try and steal your credit card information or steal access to other accounts or use or breach one of your old accounts and use that to gain access or to trick someone else. And you could find it sort of spiraling out of your control very quickly. So how many numbers and stuff were on the, the forum? So let me, let me double check. But last I checked, I think it was five. Like, obviously I'm not checking the forum itself because that would be 
kind of stupid, uh, but I think it was 533 million. And how many like monthly users does Facebook have? I have honestly no idea how Last many time I remember, Facebook has. It was 1 billion, 2 billion. So it's almost. That's total, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, um, sure. yeah uh, if that's total, then that's almost a fourth of everyone. 2.8 billion monthly active active users. On yeah, 2.8 so, billion monthly active. Jeez. So. so active, yeah. so that's what, a sixth? My God. Yeah, it's, it's a huge, huge proportion of That's a huge chunk of their things user base. Yeah. So it's it's made recent use, and this is, this is a relatively new breach. I think it was discovered uh, just a couple of days back or something. Or I think it might have just been yesterday. Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty big breach. That makes me scared. Not gonna lie. I mean, yeah. at least we don't have Facebook because we're not boomers. Yeah, but I mean, it's just not just another reason to like not trust them because we don't have Facebook and all of us have Instagram, which I do have has Facebook, been subject to I, breaches in the past. I only have Facebook for the sixth form Facebook chat. Yeah. Same. Oh man, I'm, like, I'm I, not I don't even use on that. that. Otherwise, and I'm for not like even apps, on that. when it gives you bonuses for being on Facebook, the Candy Crush. <laughs> Yeah, like, <laughs> sign into Facebook. Yeah, so I mean, realistically, like having Facebook is not that bad if Facebook takes their security and like your privacy seriously. But if they don't, I mean, an easy thing to do is just like give them dummy data. So like sign up as, I don't know, John Smith or, you know, don't sign up with your full name. Don't give them your actual email address. Use, I don't know, an alias email service or something like that. So that they have as little data on you, on you as possible because then when this gets breached, at least you are not like under direct attack. Because right now, if you'd use your normal, if you use like your, your personal email, suddenly your personal email is on the web uh, for anyone to find alongside your phone number, location, date of birth. So it's very easy for someone to try and like social engineer or just anyone who wants to, because today you might not care, but say tomorrow there's uh, some, you suddenly become a big shot in a tech company and somebody wants to like try and attack you to ruin your reputation. Or something this data can be used against you in the future in ways you can't even imagine yet mm, yeah i mean there's i think even like one of the biggest things that happened was like it was on myspace which is obviously years and years ago but like the precursor to facebook it was one of the most famous ones i think where like this guy somehow wrote some hacking or like some some worm in in the the code that Anytime someone added him as a friend, all their friends got added to his friends list as well. And vice versa, like, and it kept spreading out. And now it's like overnight, he had like 2 million friends. So it got like insane. That's how, a... that's how emails, uh, email hacks work these days, don't they? But once you open it, then it links to all of your um, friends, these emails, and then spreads out massively. Yeah. That was, uh, by the way, if you're if you're interested in that kind of thing, there's a there's a podcast called Darknet Diaries, which is where I first heard about that. They basically did an interview with the MySpace uh, with the guy who did the MySpace worm, and it, it's funny because he didn't intend it to be that big. He was expecting to get like a hundred people, and then it basically ended up being the entirety of MySpace got added onto his friends list. Also, here's a fun fact: you know how like we're talking about it, like it's a bad thing that you know MySpace suddenly added your friends into like a major database and stuff. Uh, have you guys heard of Truecaller? No. Like the, the spam. So basically, Truecaller is like a phone spam. Basically, like, you know how you get like robocalls and spam calls? It's basically like an application that notifies you when the person you're getting called from that is like a spam. 
So it'll sort of replace the contact and possible spam. The way it does this is they have a database of like everybody's contacts and every, and every related phone number. And so if the phone number calling you is in that database, then it says, you know, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's probably like a real person, right? Because if, because like Tamer, if you're getting a call from me, right? And your phone sees that the true caller database has my number in it as a contact, like someone else has my number stored. It'll say, oh yeah, this person's probably a real person because nobody adds a spam robocall with a real name to their, to their contact list or normally you shouldn't. So it'll, it'll let you through and it does like sort of advanced kind of filtering and all that kind of stuff. And it's on like a, on like a core basis, very similar to the MySpace world, just it's voluntary instead of involuntary that ends up happening. Mm. That's honestly kind of interesting that it's like also a good thing in that case. Um, but yeah, moving on to the next thing we were trying to block cryptocurrencies. I guess this is kind of like a precursor to like, um, what we want to do, which is our second season, uh, which will be coming soon where it's going to be a lot more topical talks rather than sort of the semi-random stuff we do right now. Um, but yeah, I kind of wanted to focus on cryptocurrency and kind of how it works because I've, one of my friends got me into this new cryptocurrency is actually not on the blockchain and we can go into what the blockchain actually is later um this cryptocurrency is called PyCoin, um and yeah again it's not on the blockchain yet but it was set up by these two stanford phd people i'm not sure if they're professors or if they're they were students there but they're sort of experts in the field of cryptocurrency and like fi- finance and stuff like that and they started this up and uh you can just download it and start mining and if you invite new people to the app, then more people like then you can earn more per hour basically. So right now I'm at 0.12 PyCoin per hour. Uh, and there's a lot of other stuff you can do as well, like verifying security checks for the blockchain and stuff that'll also increase your rate. So it's kind of like a community thing. It's just like where everyone benefits off of everything. But um, I think I'm at like 60 PyCoin right now. So if it blows up into so- some sort of bitcoin like craze then um, i'm going to be quite minted now the the interesting thing i find with like bitcoin is or like any of these is that they're they have there's this concept when you're doing when you're doing mining called proof of work where basically you get rewarded with bitcoin for proving that you've done like a really long complicated mathematical operation which is why like in, in, in quarantine when the pandemic took over because most, most of your Bitcoin mining happens on GPUs because they're, they're sort of built for those complicated mathematical operations. Uh, when, when the pandemic started and people had nothing better to do, they suddenly jumped on the Bitcoin trend. And so graphics cards started disappearing overnight. Like I was trying to find, cause I was thinking, oh, maybe I can build a PC or like just find parts for a PC. Anything that you can find is either like triple the triple the normal retail price or just not available so uh it's like ridiculously high prices so anything anything in like the the 30 series uh, from nvidia is impossible to get the three so like your 3080s are impossible even the 20 series are getting expensive even the 10s start to get more expensive than they should because it's just everyone's trying to jump on these on these sort of big on this sort of like you know bitcoin's going up and more people are joining and whatever and so they're expecting like if I'm if I start mining Bitcoin now, it might actually be good for me in the future. To the point where uh, there's a there's a Bitcoin called Ethereum, 
NVIDIA introduced some code into their graphics card driver, which detects Ethereum mining and slows down the, the uh, rate of uh, operations. I think, I think it basically reduces the clock speed of their GPUs or something. I'm not sure about what it does exactly, but basically it slows down the rate at which you can mine Ethereum to make people less likely to use uh, their GPUs for like cryptocurrency mining or something, which is wildly, like I find that really interesting how they've sort of unilaterally taken that decision and just sort of put it out with, with you know, no judge for how it might hurt the industry or anything. Why would they do that though? Don't they want to maximize their profits? Because surely if you're going to start limiting what your GPUs, uh, GPUs can do, then that's going to tank your sales. Honestly, I don't know why they've done it, which is another thing I don't understand. Because like, surely this time is probably good for them because, you know, all that supply and demand, basically prices are higher. So I don't know. Yeah. It might be that it might be that they're having like issues with like resellers. So uh, NVIDIA might have like cut down on how much they sell, but people might come and just buy up as many GPUs as they can and then sell them at miles higher prices kind of like what happens with like you know your uh with you know really popular sneakers or things like that right uh or with like supreme stuff as well it might might end up being a similar situation or like what happened with the ps5 when it launched you know people wrote bots to buy those as quickly as they could and then sold them at like you know one and a half two times the price that they should or, have been or toilet because paper nobody at else the beginning of the pandemic yeah yeah that kind of a thing yeah i remember reading an article there is a man who has about half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Right. But he's forgotten his password. Yeah. And you only get three attempts to try to log into your account. And he's used up two of them. No, he's used up one of them. So he has two yeah. more attempts mm -hmm. to remember his password. And that's crazy. That's the thing with Bitcoin is like, it's, it's a, it, like the whole point of cryptocurrency is that they're, decentralized which like means that they're not attached to any sort of government like or or a bank or anything like normal transactions like credit card transactions all go through some mediator right like depending on what credit card user you have whether it's like visa or mastercard or whatever bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies don't have that it's all one massive just everyone who is part of the blockchain just contributes to it and it's all over the world and I was so confused about how that even works as a whole. But when I re read up on it, I can see how it works, but I just don't know how it's become so scalable. And I think that's one thing that plays into why it gets increasingly harder as more people start mining Bitcoin. As Like what people say is when, quote, more nodes join the network. Uh, because, and even this is happening with the PyCoin stuff. Um, there's, when you log on to the PyCoin app, there's a graphic that shows up that says mine now before the next halving. And what the halving is, is basically there are certain milestones based on how many users join the Pi network. And after a certain threshold, then the base rate of mining halves. So right now, since it's a relatively new currency, it's still at the, at the starting rate, which is 0.2 Pi coin per hour as a maximum. After I think um, like a million users actually no there's 15 million users right now so after some value that's higher than that it'll have to 0.1 percent and the graph keeps showing it just goes like it's like a staircase it just keeps going down and down and down until eventually when there's like an exorbitantly large amount 
people, which probably isn't likely for that many people to be mining PyCoin, the rate drops to zero. It's not profitable anymore. Like there's too many nodes for the blockchain to handle. So I just think that's interesting that like in this monetary system, there will be a point where money literally means nothing, which is, I think is quite interesting. Yeah, I was just looking up right now. In total, or in theory, by 2140, 2140, we will have mined the last Bitcoin at 21 million. And I think I'm not exactly sure why there's that hard limit. I don't know if it's to do with, um, like you were saying, Tamer, about the um like a physical limitation or is it just to do with the way they assign values to bitcoins and not having its own um uh limit um i do know about the public ledger which is why bitcoin's so secure where basically if you don't know what the public ledger is it's um a copy of every single transaction that's ever happened throughout the history of bitcoin and every single computer that mines bitcoins will have a copy of that public ledger or a partial copy of it. So any transaction, um, which is, for example, if you try to fake a transaction using Bitcoin and it doesn't match with the public ledger that every computer in the world will have, then your transaction is halted or it's not allowed to pass through, um, which is why it's so secure. And going back to the entire decentralized point, um, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Good thing in terms of... Um, well, if you want to keep your money uh, tax-free or you want to, uh, when you transfer between accounts, um, don't have a portion of that money taken away, that's good. But then it um, it allows this entire field of the black market where the moment money starts becoming decentralized, that means transactions can happen across the world, which is not regulated by governments, which is not regulated by the public sector. And it's all kept private and you can't do anything to stop those transactions. Just to clarify one thing, uh, when you said public ledger, yeah, I remember. The public ledger is just basically the same thing as the blockchain, like what I was talking about before. The blockchain is, like you said, I mean, to be fair, I'd like, there's tutorials on YouTube that go around. It's just like how to make your very own blockchain. It's just kind of like a small thing in Python. And basically all they're doing is that they're making a linked list where each node is, has properties like trend, like sender, buyer, amount, you know, stuff like that. So it's, yeah, to simplify it down, the public ledger, ledger slash blockchain is just that, a list of transactions, which I guess they might use a linked list in like big cryptocurrencies, but yeah. Yeah, it's almost the same thing. I mean, the blockchain is a type of ledger. There is different types. So the blockchain is the main one that we talk about. Um, and it's the most prominent one. The The interesting thing is there's a, I'm, I'm sure you guys know there's a there's a thing in mathematics and in computer science called hashing which is where you take input data and you basically run a one-way mathematical operation on it and it gives you like an output uh so you use this like in in security and stuff to like find uh to make sure that the file you downloaded is exactly the same file that was uploaded so <clears throat> some places that are security minded what they'll do is they'll you'll download the file, but they'll have like, you know, the MD5 or the SHA-256 or the SHA-1 hash on their website next to the download link. So what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to, once you've downloaded the file, you're supposed to basically on your own terminal run run a hashing command on it and compare the two hashes, make sure they match. And that way you know that you've downloaded exactly what you're supposed to have downloaded. Bitcoin, uh, the blockchain uses a similar concept where basically every, uh, every, 
I can't remember what they call it. I think it's basically every entry contains a hash of the previous entry. And so as a result, if I have, say, four uh, transactions, if I try and adjust the third from last one, I have to change the third from last one, then recalculate the second from last one, then recalculate the last one to basically make sure that the hashes match so that nothing goes wrong there. And it's easy to say, you know, oh, if it's just my computer, you can break into my computer and do it. But when you have like, you know, a hundred or a thousand or a million computers, each with their own copy of it, it becomes very, very difficult to large scale, like brute force them. Yeah, going back to the entire article about the person who lost half a billion in Bitcoin, I was wondering, if you forget your password, does that, does those copies of the Bitcoins, do they become lost in terms of if you've entered every single um, password try, I think you get three in total. Do you think that gets lost or do you think that gets returned back into the blockchain for mining again? I mean, I don't know enough about Bitcoin to really talk about that, but I think it's because a bit, like I was saying, a Bitcoin is basically a proof of work, right? Uh, so I think effectively you lose access to them and it's just nobody uses them ever and because like the thing you have to understand is bitcoin isn't necessarily like it's not like a, a bank where you can say you know oh i can log into my account uh the, the way bitcoin works is you can you can store your bitcoin in things that are called exchanges which are basically like they're effectively like the bitcoin equivalent of a bank so they're just like they keep track of transactions and they allow you to store you know your bitcoin there and stuff like that so when exchange gets breaches like all hell breaks loose. but you can also have your own personal bitcoin wallet which is what this guy couldn't remember his password for uh, and those basically store i think it's like the digital signature of your bitcoin so you, you can prove that i have access to this and i am the only one who owns this and so if if you lose that signature you effectively lose the the, the actual Bitcoin and that becomes lost to everyone because nobody else should have that signature but you. It's interestingly because we were on that like that whole you know black market and like dark trade kind of a thing. Uh, Bitcoin is actually surprisingly trackable by by like the FBI and stuff. They they breach a lot of places. I think there was, oh, I think it was Silk Road or something, which is basically like a big drugs market on the dark net. They got breached uh, because they were able to figure out who some of the key people were. Uh, and track their Bitcoin transaction because that's the thing of the ledger, right? Everything is publicly available. So I can go and look up who has like who has made what's what transaction. And they did like a massive correlation attack and managed to figure out who the person was and effectively seize uh, their their assets and conduct raids and basically take down an entire drug smuggling network just just by basically exploiting or just by basically doing a correlation attack on the Bitcoin network. Yeah, I mean, the the deep web and the dark web could be like a whole episode in itself because there's some crazy stuff on that, honestly. That's like, I was watching, like I watched a few videos on it, just learning what it was. And I, I can safely say that I never, ever want to go on the deep web. Um, but yeah, uh, let's move on to the next thing. Uh, universities, obviously a big thing that's going to come up in our lives in not too long, actually, which is kind of scary to think about. We're going to be, we're going to apply, we're going to start our applications in probably like eight months is when we first start applying, which is scary to think about. But uh, Tom, I think you had something that like you were talking about a uni course you were doing for uh, Delft and stuff. And like, uh, why don't you talk about what that university is, why you like it, stuff like that? Sure. Um, well, just first, I'm going to introduce what Delft is so that 
in the Netherlands where I'm from. Both my parents studied at a university called Delft, which is or TU Delft, which is like a university named after the place it's in. It's pretty simple. Um, basically, they're quite a good uh, technical university, so they do a lot of courses on engineering and architecture and a few newer ones on computer science. And since both my parents went to Delft, they I don't know, it, it sort of motivated me to maybe go to the same place or at least check out the same place. So I I looked at this specific course called Computer Science and Engineering, taught in English. So all the uh, like uh, international and external students can join that as well. And then um, my mom was looking at uh, open days to see if this summer we could go to uh, to see if this summer we could go to, um, to, I don't know, go to the campus, have a look around, meet people, stuff like that. But turns out because of COVID, obviously we're not allowed to actually go to the um, go to the campus and look at things and get like a taster. So they've um, they've come up with this idea of like a, a virtual lecture system, which is pretty much uh, I think it's a three week course of about two hours every week so a total six hours which isn't bad and it's like pre-recorded online lectures ab about the uh the course they're giving so computer science and engineering so what they do is they have these pre-recorded lectures but then they assign you to a live student that's actually studying at that university so if you have questions on the lecture you can just send them like send them a message, ask them how they would do it or if they can give you some advice and stuff. And it just helps you start building connections with the university and it shows interest. So uh, it's definitely something I'm, uh, I've signed up for and I'm hoping to do. Um, yeah, it says on their website, three things that they're going to do is modern database techniques, which I think we've already started quite a bit, uh, testing software, and obviously varying programming languages and a bit like that. So I think it's just a, an introduction to their course and it might be interesting. And there's quite a lot of other students that we know that also are going to look at it to like go there. Like Pratish, even you said you were, you were like considering going there. Um, I personally, I haven't done enough research on enough unis to actually make a list of where I want to go. And I haven't even like begun to think about other than the US and UK, uh, like what my options are because US and UK are kind of like the the big places to go for uh, like most professions. But obviously there's a bunch of amazing universities across the world. Um, but Pratish, you said that you did quite a bit of research on like UK unis and stuff. So what kind of stuff are you looking for and what kind of uh, places do you think might be right for you in like in terms of everything about that? Honestly, it's like I haven't really started like deciding what places would be good for me or things i've just been looking i mean we've for anyone who doesn't who's like not in our year in our school listening to this we we've been we get given access to a tool called unifrog uh, which basically allows you to do a load of stuff for generally uk specific applications but there's some stuff for like uh, us and whatever uh, so I've literally just been on there making the short lists that they allow you to do and uh, stuff and stuff like that. I haven't really 
like I haven't really done that much research into like the specifics of things that, uh, that like you have to you have to look for in the uni. So I haven't looked at like you know I don't know accommodation costs or uh, things like that, right? I mean I don't I don't know because I it's like I have to look through programs, I have to look through extracurricular activities, I have to look through where they're located in nearby facilities, uh, rankings, uh, you know, whether or not they're reach, whether or not they're like, you know, aspirations or safeties or like solid choices and things like that. Because the, the one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to like say, you know, okay, I'm going for, because under UCAS in the UK, you can only apply to five. I don't want to say, okay, I'm going for these five universities and then find out on like, actual like getting back your offers day that all of them were aspirational and none of them have accepted me because that's like the worst feeling i so i don't know what's a good choice yet or not which is like i guess where i need to like go to some of the school people like i don't know miss lambert or someone and talk to them about it and cs is a very interesting field in that regard for all universities not just uk because obviously um you know, we all know that getting good grades is one thing, but unis aren't, won't just accept you based off of that. They obviously want to look at your actual passion in whatever you're applying for. If, of course, you're going, you're applying um, for a course and not applying undecided, which you can do in the US. And the thing with CS is that it's quite easy to do that by just doing projects, whereas it might not be as easy for something like law for example because like what extracurricular activities can there be in law other than like i started a law society you know i mean to be fair we say that but we did start a cs society so you know but um yeah like cs is something where it's all about expanding your horizons and that's exactly what unis want to see to be honest and i think it's just it's a great thing and like another thing i've heard is that Obviously, we know that CS is an extremely competitive course, like basically across the world now. One of the most competitive courses, if not the most in most schools. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of competition. And with that comes like these cracked people that have like made these startups and stuff that have like, you know, made a lot of money and stuff at the age of like 17 or something. So it just gets you thinking, like, what could you do? What could like what kind of cool projects could you start off? Obviously right now we're just kind of keeping it low key, which is fine. Just doing kind of like our own fun little projects that are cool and we find interesting, which unis will inevitably find interesting. Um, but it just, it makes me excited to think about like what could I personally do that kind of shows what I want to do, you know? I mean, it's funny because you, you find it like interesting, like, showing off, you know, what can I do? What can I show I'm passionate about? I kind of dread it because it's a thing of, I am very, very indecisive. So I will, I am more the kind of person who work on 20 projects and abandon all of them, like 10% the way through instead of working on like two or three and completing them. Cause it'd be like, oh, this is cool. And then I'll switch to another project. And I'm like, oh, this other thing is cool. And I'll switch back. And I'll end up like constantly jumping around places and never finish a project. And then even when I do, I always have this like, Sometimes it's like this, like the term imposter syndrome kind of comes to mind. Sometimes it's like that, you know, I haven't really done that much because I've depended on, you know, insert library name here or insert guide name here and stuff. And I never really end up like seeing it as like an achievement that's up for something that I've done. It just ends up being, oh yeah, I 
kind of did this and you know whatever but it, it wasn't that big of a deal when sometimes like the things I do are actually a big deal but I just sort of play them down and that's the thing about like um doing all these projects like obviously you may not finish some of them but just like the fact that you you can you can talk about them even if they're not finished like that's what I do a lot when I just say it, like the stuff I've been doing whenever I need to say it whether it's for like a cv or, or like some project proposal I'll just talk about stuff that I either did but kind of like didn't finish stuff I'm doing but I don't know if I'm going to finish or stuff I've actually finished um like it's actually interesting you know right before we started filming or recording this episode um I was on another zoom call with this um this other student um she's she goes to desk and I think she's a year older than us um it was for this because uh again uh for those of you who didn't watch like the previous episodes I'm making a poetry bot that can generate Urdu poetry in the style of a particular poet um and I was just looking for ways to kind of publicize that and I found this um Instagram account that basically just deals with all like it's an account run by a student they're an NGO that kind of just does all things Pakistan they're called land of the pure um and they just do a lot of stuff like they've been doing like really cool stuff honestly like they were recently invited to like a government board meeting with Pakistan to talk about how the youth can sort of um bring forward their ideas and stuff which I think is amazing and the girl that runs it is really like doing great stuff and I was just on a meeting with her like just talking about my project and stuff and like we're gonna collaborate and I'm gonna be like on the website and stuff and it's like all this stuff I didn't necessarily do it for the uni but it's just like one thing I'm doing that can kind of show you know this is what I'm interested in and this is what I'm passionate about and this is what I think I can do and I think like that shows sort of yeah like shows what I want to do I think what you were going going back to what Patish was saying about leaving projects halfway through or the moment you get stuck you kind of just move on to a new idea I think it's interesting that when you're given a homework task or you have to code up a certain homework project, the moment you get stuck, you know that you have to complete it because everyone else is going to do it. So then you just struggle for ages until you finally break through and then you get the project done. But whenever you start your own project, it's more difficult to think about it that way, that you need to get it done. It sort of becomes more of a burden. And I think it's just about mentality to a certain extent about because if you keep working on it, you will break through eventually. Because most of the projects that we do, there are most of them are a fraction of the complexity that a lot of our favorite YouTubers probably do. Um, so sometimes it is probably like impossible, but most of the time, if we just work hard enough, we can break through it. And I think it's a nice idea that you, you get a lot of new ideas when you're doing a project where you kind of become bored of it. But I think this, the satisfaction of completing an entire project um the moment like you're finished and you've finished up all the code and it looks all nice and clean and you're ready just to do the final commit onto the github it, it's like a satisfaction that you don't really get from a lot of other things in computer science Mom, yeah, i never think... use github yeah i know it's a bit of <laughs> it's a bit of uh, to get hypocrisy. practice um when i say initial like final commit i also mean my initial commit because I'll, I'll do the project and then oh, i'll put it to get help thing. in one go <laughs> it still is satisfactory. About what you were saying about motivation, like the homework stuff. 
I like I was recently thinking about maybe starting a YouTube channel where I document all of my like coding adventures, if you could say, or like coding challenges. And like I'm, those, like having a YouTube channel that forces you to finish projects and then upload them, like that would be good motivation for me at least, because I'm really inspired by all those like uh, uh, coding YouTubers. I mean, for me, like I, I wasn't, I kind of still am really into photography and I did have like a thing where I would, I had a photography Instagram account and I'd post stuff on there and it would be like, you know, I'd do it just for the heck of it. Not really because I wanted people to see it, just because it was like, it gave me a reason to do it. But then for me, that kind of fizzled out because then I started taking like, just doing photography, taking photos, doing the editing and all that kind of stuff, just because I wanted to. And so I kind of just gave up, like, I, I don't think I posted on that account in, in years. Uh, but or like at least a year and a bit because it's just I never sort of that sort of pushed me to to sort of to sort of do it regularly and then after that I just kind of I just kind of stopped bothering to upload because uploading became more of a hassle than doing the actual photography was which was the exact opposite situation when I when I first started the account to an like ex- burnout yeah yeah that's true to an extent uh github is kind of like that for me even though like it's to a much smaller degree because with instagram and stuff it's like you're directly posting content for an audience wherever the audience may be whereas with github is kind of just like it's sort of that but it's just a kind of a storage it's like for all your projects and stuff um but like what i'm was saying about like the pushing stuff you know i actually like push stuff to github like frequently even though it doesn't really like for me it doesn't really do much but like just getting to the habit of that is good and it's kind of for me like sets milestones for my projects because once I finish like a big part of a project that's when I'll push it and I'll put in the commit message like oh added this and this and this so that's also another thing that I think is quite good for staying on track with projects um and sort of just like staying focused and getting all the segments done um yeah so i had a recent scare when i was working on one of my projects um my computer just randomly shut down and i lost quite of like a good chunk of the code and then that sort of made me realize i should really start uploading stuff to github um because if that happens again especially with my NEA, then that becomes a huge problem and i think i'll definitely be forced to upload all of my code into my NEA and keep a real track of it um, also because of the useful feature with GitHub with versions. So I can, um, when I'm doing testing or I'm talking about um, any issues I run into, I can just go back to previous versions and then see what I've done wrong or uh, what I've improved it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of features I, I still have not explore with GitHub. And I do need to link it to my VS code somehow. Yeah, Which project was that? Um, it was the library system and something else. I had two pieces of code. Or two projects open up. Oh, right. Yeah. I have the same thing. My battery is absolutely like tragic. So my laptop restarts randomly. And so I'm always incredibly scared of all my code just being like lost. So I always upload everything to GitHub now. And also my NEA write up, that's all online. <laughs> Nothing is stored on here because I'm sure it's just going to get corrupted or like, I don't know, vanish. Yeah, oh, I need to do that as well. I need to upload it to OneDrive. 
The only copy I have is the email I sent to our teacher. I take so many backups as well. It's crazy. That That's is so it like having one copy is so like there's there's sorry to keep I had to keep bringing up stuff, but there's like this rule when you're taking backups of like three, two, one. You need to have three copies, two uh, on site, one off site. So like you need to have three copies, like one on your computer, one on a hard drive, and then one in like the cloud, because that way you have like if your house burns down or something, you still have a copy somewhere. Like okay, I'm getting kind of scared. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> back up everything today. If your house burns down, I think you got more things to worry about than like your NEA. If your house burns down, no, I mean in fairness, <laughs> it is for like professional photographers where this is like their their livelihood, right? So losing those photos to them is like basically losing their salary. But like yeah. you know, you you get what I mean. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if your house burns down, I'm pretty sure you'll get a nice extension. If my house burns down, I might actually finish my project. <laughs> <laughs> then you have nothing to distract you. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking yeah, of YouTube, your scale, like, you'll have to wait another like six months to get your a new scale lectures. Yeah, bro, I swear to God. <laughs> As for the school, that delivery took so long. Yeah, that's just put me behind schedule on everything, and it's so irritating. I should have just done software. I would have finished everything by now. I swear to God. You should have done your flappy no. bird. I should have. Oh, man. Literally, I should have just done that. Does that even count as an NEA project? It does. Yeah. He said that would have been a perfect NEA. Oh, first. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, at, least, at least that's the backup. Yeah, you'll you'll end up do doing write-up. two and a half NEAs. Yeah, I'm we, doing that no, for my worst EPQ, case, though, Worst so case scenario. Oh, yeah. You can't do your EPQ in an NEA yeah. project, so... Yeah, I mean, you not could, theoretically. Yeah, no, you're, you're no, technically not allowed to. Check. Allegedly, I've heard you can. You're not allowed to. People have done it. To be fair, really? I'm, I'm changing my I'm changing my Fabi bird up quite a bit for my APQ. I'm gonna restart it from scratch. Try to do some, I don't know, more efficient coding stuff. So we'll see if I make it different enough. Then maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tom, about yeah, your YouTube so, stuff. Actually, no. Yeah, yeah I was just about ahead. to ask. No, I was just about to say the same thing about your YouTube channel. When you're thinking about starting it. When? Yeah, like, are you going to start it just for your NEA or are you going to put other projects on there first and then? Depends if my projects are interesting enough. And I don't know how I want to, like, style it. Do I want to go Code Bullet style? Do I want to go Sebastian League style? Do I want to go danny style they're all like funny but i doubt i could be as funny as danny that's why so probably like sebastian league might be satisfying yeah he does amazing stuff like and it's, it's always just like whenever i'm watching his stuff i feel like i'm in a documentary like his like just the way he does his commentary is is really like and always also his just projects are really cool as well and he's yeah. very good at coding it's weirdly professional for youtube mm, yeah <laughs> Have you guys, have you guys so heard true. of a Have you guys heard of a YouTuber called Stuff Made Here? Oh my God, he's. I watched his favorites. new video today. He is so he's he's crap. So, like, I don't understand how. I he think does I watched the a stuff few. He does. Wait, sorry. What is the he one about him cutting the uh, using a chainsaw to cut a dog? I was yeah. really oh like this morning. Stuff Made Here. Yeah, yeah I got he's so young as well. He's like twenty-five or something. Yeah, he does crazy things. So like he's done he's done three different versions. Uh, of a basketball hoop that you can never miss with. 
Oh, uh, I the see latest that. one is literally the latest one is literally you throw it at the wall and the hoop will move and make sure it gets in all the time. Uh, so that that's like the latest one. He's done, I think, he's done an unbreakable lock at one point. He's done a couple of things with like chainsaws. He does really insane projects, and they're always like a blend. He's done a he's done basically what's called what he dubbed like an automatic pool cue, where it basically like he's got a camera and it basically decides based on the pool table what is the best move you can make and then shows that move that but the, it does it itself so as well yeah it does it itself that project was so complicated i watched yeah it, I think, like, like his entire explanation about the distortion of the camera he's using yeah. and then how he has to correct that and then use it as like a pinball like that ball was not mine by the way he's 31 by the way yeah he's married he yeah, he's married. You, you, he keeps making jokes about his wife throughout, throughout his videos. But it's like, I find it amazing how he's just like, oh yeah, I just had to correct for distortion, something that would probably take like us maybe like five hours to do. He just, Wait, like, that would be a whole know, five days. project. Yeah. Correct for he just says, oh yeah, I corrected for distortion. And I'm just like, how? The, the hardware stuff is reminding me of this other YouTuber because obviously like a lot of YouTubers we watch are mainly code, like, like software based. Um, this guy, I, I don't know, I might have t- uh, talked to you guys about him before. His name's Michael Reeves, and he does. Oh, like, I love him. <laughs> he's uh, he's probably a little more offensive, shall I say, than than some of the other YouTubers. Like he he's made like he makes like jokes and stuff, and his projects are just like really out there. Basically, he made you know the Roomba thing, like the little bots that yeah. vacuum your floor. <laughs> he made one that has a speaker on it, and every time it bumps into something, it like screams. <laughs> Yeah, it swears at you. <laughs> yeah. And there's uh there's another one where he makes a microwave that only turns on <laughs> when you scream at it. Like it's very scream based stuff. And there's also one, you know, there's an Elmo doll that's like voice activated. And and another one is he like he does a lot of stuff with tasers actually, which is a, quite concerning. Like he made these like little box things that had taser units inside of it, and he connected it up to the to a camera like a DSLR camera and he like put it on his friends because he's like really short right so like every time they took a picture he like they would attach the taser boxes to their legs and every time the, the camera goes off it tases them so they fall over and he's the tallest person in the picture <laughs> <laughs> he's actually amazing and there's another one where it's an electric like he attaches tasers to a chair and he like makes his friends do where's waldo and it's just like an eye tracker on the on the computer screen, and if they can't find Waldo in a minute, they get tased. <laughs> it's uh, I've seen a I've seen a program that goes into like the Waldo. Like somebody will buy the book, and then it'll find Waldo, and then like create a digital copy, and then remove Waldo, and then <laughs> he puts the entire book together, and then he returns it to the library. So any like future like seven year old who buys the book will never be able to find Waldo. This is what we're doing with technology <laughs> in 2021. Oh man, there's there's that, and then there's like I think there's a robotics lab who came up with a thing, which is like basically a camera and like a laser projector kind of thing that scans books at like 400 pages a minute. It's just like you have you have this, and then you have like mass digitization of things. It's just like yeah. wonders yeah. of technology. These like funny projects also like they could potentially lead to actually really useful stuff, which is quite cool. Um, but yeah, I think I'm going to uh, end it here. We've been talking for quite a while. Um, we'll catch everyone later in season two, where we're going to do a lot more topical talks, potentially with some guest speakers. We hope to get 
uh, people on. We've, we've planned a few people, some quite notable people, actually. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>